Welcome to the Arbitration Conversation with Amy Schmitz. Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Conversation. So in this conversation, we're going to talk to Dr. Benjamin Hayward, is a senior lecturer at the Department of Business of Law and Taxation at the Monash Business School at Monash University in Australia. His research focuses on international commercial arbitration law, international sale of goods, and private international law. His PhD addresses how arbitration identified the governing substantive law in international commercial arbitration absent party choice of law, and his thesis was published with Oxford University Press. He has been quite impressive in his work with CISG and in focusing on you know, consumer sale of goods and what does that mean and how does that work with arbitration and arbitration law. So first of all, thank you, Ben, taking time with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for the opportunity to talk about some of the research I've been working on and uh, have a bit of a talk today about uh, what the CISG might have to do with arbitration. Right. And I know I messed up everything because I always do. And that's part of the funny part where I make my students laugh. But I must say, like, you have a wonderful background. Everything you've done in your background um, brings you to this. Um, what was your journey? What brought you to this area of law? Uh, I guess like a lot of people in Australia who have an interest in uh, the CISG, and for those who aren't familiar, that's the uh, United Nations Convention on Contracts for the International Sale of Goods. Uh, I had my first exposure to the convention as an undergraduate law student participating in the Willem Sevier's International Commercial Arbitration Moot. Uh, my law school that I, I did my undergraduate studies at, Deakin University, has been one of the few uh, law schools that has participated in that competition since its very first year. So I was able to uh, represent my university in the Hong Kong leg of that competition and go on with my teammates to Vienna as well. And the, the particular year that I participated, there were a mix of arbitration law, sales law, and private international law topics. And that's really how I got interested in those three international commercial law disciplines and more importantly how they interact with each other and the interaction between them is something that um, that I've often focused on in my published research uh, and I guess um, that's one of the reasons why I find the CISG's potential application in international commercial arbitration in particular such an interesting topic. I've been fortunate enough after moving into academia to be able to continue uh, pursuing all of those areas as um, my research interests. I love that. Yeah, because you're thinking about issues you've dealt with, but also that's a great story for students to learn about, like how you learn about something, you become interested. And also thinking about CISG, what makes arbitration suitable for international sales? I mean, why is it that arbitration would be the right forum for this kind of dispute? Yeah, I guess there's a few reasons. Some of them have to do with the advantages we often talk about arbitration having, and some have to do with the CISG itself and what it aims to do. So if we think about the advantages of arbitration that we often talk about, there are a couple in particular that makes it well-suited to resolve international sales law disputes where the CISG is the 
governing law. One of the things we always talk about with arbitration is the enforceability of awards cross-border pursuant to the New York Convention. Often we have better cross-border enforceability of awards from international commercial arbitration than uh, cross-border enforceability of state court judgments. Um, and the thing about CISG disputes is that they're necessarily international in character. So um, under, under Article 1, 1 of the CISG, uh, very first words of the convention state, the convention applies to contracts of sale of goods between parties whose places of business are in different states. So if the CISG is governing an international sale, sale of goods, you've already necessarily got a cross-border transaction. Um, also, the ability of the parties to have some control over their decision makers might be attractive for CISG disputes. And it's unfortunately the case in some jurisdictions that state court judges tend to approach the CISG through the prism of their own domestic sales laws. And that's something that we see in Australia um, in a article I published with the Melbourne University Law Review um, recently with a couple of um, uh, practitioners in Australia, uh, Andrea Anastasi and Stephanie Peter-Brown, we looked at how um, Australian courts have tended to increasingly embrace the internationalisation of our arbitration laws over time, but we haven't really seen the same for our cases that deal with the CISG. And because it's an international treaty adopted over 95 countries, it's meant to be interpreted in an internationalist manner and right. um, that's actually a requirement under the treaty itself. And um, arbitrators may be perhaps more open to those sensitivities. And I guess finally as well, thinking about the CISG itself and what it, what it tries to do, we can see some reasons why arbitration is a good choice there. It's a sales law that's meant to allow buyers and sellers to encounter a familiar law no matter what country they're trading in. The idea is if the law of sales is harmonised across the world, and as I mentioned, we've currently got 95 state parties to the convention, all of the world's major trading nations, except the UK, really. Um, if buyers and sellers are dealing with the same law in all the jurisdictions they operate in, the costs of doing business are lowered, trade is, is promoted, and that's kind of what arbitration tries to do as well. Arbitration laws aren't an end in themselves. They're meant to facilitate trade and the CISG has a similar purpose. And there's one more synergy there um, before, before we wrap up this topic in that both arbitration laws in the procedural sense and CISG in the substantive sense are, are really firmly rooted in party autonomy. So just as the parties can choose their procedure in, in the arbitration side of things, the dispute resolution side of things, um, parties can in nearly all respects tailor the CISG's operation to the requirements of their particular con contract. So that's another, another nice synergy there that makes the dispute resolution method um, a nice fit for this particular area of contract law. Right. I absolutely, I mean, looking at the New York Convention and enforcement, it makes sense, but how do you get people to agree to this? So what do we know about how many cases actually go to arbitration? It's one thing to say they should, but do they? It's a really good question. And um, the easy starting point is to recognize we don't know definitively because of 
the lack of any kind of comprehensive statistics about arbitration at all, let alone comprehensive statistics about what laws are used. Um, but we do have a number of indicators that suggest that the CISG is quite commonly applied in arbitration. There was a, um, a worldwide empirical study carried out in 2009, uh, the Global Sales Law Project, which suggested that um, while most of the recorded CISG cases we have on the databases are from courts, um, since um, most arbitral awards are confidential, we could infer that most CISG cases are actually handled by arbitral tribunals. Um, Professor Lucas Mustelis has had a go at, at giving an actual figure on this, and by taking the number of, um, of arbitral awards we have on one of the main CISG databases, which was about 1,600, and estimating that perhaps less than 5% of arbitral awards are on the public record, um, he surmises that there may be well over 10,000 awards dealing with the CISG in reality. Uh, and I guess um, if we look to the arbitral awards that are available on the public record, there are some arbitral institutions uh, like CTAC in China that have a very large number of CISG arbitrations on the public record. And when I checked uh, the, the current total yesterday on the um, PACE Law School CISG database, there were 400 arbitral awards addressing the CISG recorded um, from CTAC, from just that one institution, right, right. On that database alone. Um, so so um, despite the, I guess, confidentiality issues that prevent us knowing for sure, there are probably quite a lot of CISG cases that do actually get handled by arbitration. Right. It makes sense. I mean, definitely. I'm thinking about um, in court, I was part of a case, an expert witness where it was in court, right? And so you're, it was international, you're dealing with all of that. And you think about the time it takes, the money it takes. Um, arbitration does make sense. And there might be other strategic reasons too why arbitration is a good fit for a CISG. Enforcement, enforcement, uh, right? Even, even aside from enforcement, but where the laws that might otherwise apply oh, could right. be restrictive about the subject matter. So um, a, a couple of articles I published last year looked at the CISG's capacity to govern not just physical goods trade, but trade in digital objects like cryptocurrencies. And if you have yeah. some jurisdictions whose laws take a restrictive approach to cryptocurrencies, um, you might like to have a clause in your contract submitting to disputes to arbitration instead and using the CISG as a facilitative law there when going to court in perhaps the, the, the courts of your contracting counterparty, their laws may not actually recognize cryptocurrencies as a valid as a valid object of trade. Right. Let's use that as like kind of a microcosm. Let's look at crypto. So what rules, let's say you have a crypto exchange and you lost money, what rules trigger CISG? So like thinking about what, how would that be triggered and how would I think about that in arbitration if I have a case with cryptocurrency, for example? Yeah, so the crypto example is really good because it 
it hones in on one particular aspect of the CISG's application criteria, which is the idea that you have to have goods. So as I mentioned before, Article 1, sub-Article 1 of the CISG talks about how it applies to contracts of sale of goods. So without goods, we can't have the CISG's application. Right. And one um, important aspect of the CISG is that it's interpreted autonomously. So it's given its own meaning separate to the meaning that would be given to its terms in domestic legal systems. So for example, there's a, um, a uh, digital assets consultation currently happening through the Law Commission for England and Wales, where they talk about how digital objects, including cryptocurrencies, probably don't qualify as goods under the Sale of Goods Act, and it would probably be the same result under the Sale of Goods Act here in Australia. But the CISG is given its own meaning, and there are some good reasons using um, the CISG's interpretive tools to say that digital objects, including cryptocurrencies, could be goods for the purposes of, of that convention. But there are some other application criteria as well that lead to the convention applying. And it's useful here to think about, first of all, how it would apply in the litigation context and then compare arbitration and see how it's a bit different. So the key provision here is Article 1 of the CISG, and it says that where you have a contract for the sale of goods between parties who are in different states, then the CISG will apply in one of two situations. First of all, uh, if both the buyer and the seller have their places of business in contracting states, so countries that have adopted the CISG. And second of all, and this is an or, so it doesn't have to be both, if the rules of private international law lead to the application of a CISG country's law. So the first situation where both countries are signatories to the CISG, that's seen as a kind of automatic application. And as I mentioned, with 95 um, uh, contracting states around the world, including both the USA and Australia, there's a good chance that the CISG could apply automatically on that basis. Um, the second situation is where, for example, the parties have a choice of law clause in their contract and they choose the laws of a jurisdiction that's adopted the CISG. The CISG is considered to form part of a country's law when it's been adopted by a country. So, for example, in my home jurisdiction, the state of Victoria in Australia, our Ordinary Sale of Goods Act is the law that governs regular domestic transactions, and the CISG is the part of our law that governs international transactions. So a contract with a choice of law clause selecting the laws of Victoria in Australia would include the CISG. Um, on the basis of my research, there's probably between 15 and 20% of cases in international trade where you don't have a choice of law clause. And there, if the court applies some kind of conflict of laws rule that leads, us, leads it to the law of a CISG country, the CISG applies there as well. So um, in Australia, our courts would look for the law that a contract has its closest and most real connection to. And if that was a CISG country, then the CISG would apply there too. So that's how it would work in a litigation setting. And I should mention as well, there's another wrinkle there relevant to the American context where um, the CISG permits a reservation where countries can say they won't be bound by the application criteria through private international law, that second option. And the USA, along with China and Singapore and a couple of other countries, have made that reservation. So in the US context, it's only situations where both parties are from a, a CISG contracting state 
where right. it would apply in the courts. But of course, in arbitration, we've got this situation where we have to look at the arbitral rules as well and the arbitral law that applies because those rules and those laws contain provisions telling arbitrators how to identify what the governing law is. So they kind of work together with the provisions of the CISG to work out when the CISG applies. So um, I guess a good example, the ICDR rules, which I, I know you'd be very familiar oh, with. Yeah. Yeah. Article um, 34 of those, again, recognises the party's ability to choose their own law. So if the parties choose the law of a country that's adopted the CISG, that provision in conjunction with the CISG itself causes it to apply. And then if the arbitrators themselves have to choose the law because there's no choice of law clause, um, the ICDR rules, to give just one example, give arbitrators really wide discretion in making that choice. And again, if they select the the law of a country that has adopted the CISG, the CISG comes along with it there. Right, right. I might be a little controversial, but I do think that we ought to think outside the box. I mean, what about problem solving? I feel like all of this with CISG is very like regimented. What do mm. you think about the possibility for mediation and thinking about other ways to solve problems? Yeah, absolutely. And, and everything we've spoke about so far has kind of presumed that we're in a formal dispute resolution. Right. <laughs> but one of the great things about the CISG is that if parties have a common framework they can work with that allows them to easily understand their rights and obligations, maybe engaging in some kind of less formal dispute resolution method is made a bit easier if parties have a clearer picture of what their rights and obligations might be. So one of the great things about the CISG compared to um, picking the neutral law of some country they've never been to and they don't even know what the law is, you've got um, the CISG available uh, in equally authentic language versions in all six la official languages of the United Nations. Uh, it's written in a way that's meant to be accessible to business people. Uh, and of course, you would probably have legal advice in in even in a less formal dispute resolution context, but it's meant to be readily understandable to the business community. It's meant to be a tool for the business community, not just a tool for lawyers. And to that end, um, uh, my understanding is that the UN sees it as, as particularly beneficial where you have um, small or medium enterprises uh, who might not want to go down that formal dispute resolution um, path and who might particularly benefit from having this tool that allows them to more easily understand what their rights and obligations might be and maybe more easily come to a negotiated or mediated settlement of a dispute. Right, right. I think we have to find other ways that are cheaper and easier for everyone involved. But then once you have an award, um, what happens if like you got it wrong? Like what, what can a party do? Is there yeah, any so, kind of recourse or not? Yeah, I, I guess it depends a bit on what type of error has been made. So coming back to the New York Convention and the idea that, um, that it's going to be the backbone of any kind of enforcement proceedings involving the CISG, um, as most of your listeners I'm sure would know the, the grounds for challenging an award or challenging an awards enforcement under Article 5 of the New York Convention are all kind of procedurally focused. So we know that just because an arbitrator makes a mistake about the about 
the way they apply the law, that's in most countries not going to be considered grounds for challenging an award. And the, the Redfern in Hunter text actually puts this really well. Um, it says that the that you know provided that due process occurs and the procedural requirements of the arbitration are fulfilled, the award is binding, whether its contents are good, bad, or indifferent. So just like uh, the application of um, the misapplication of New York law or the misapplication of Victorian law or the misapplication of Chinese law isn't going to trigger recourse against an award, misapplying the CISG isn't going to um, either. And that's one of the trade-offs I guess that parties make when when they agree to arbitration. There's a particular case from Singapore though um, that provides an interesting example of how this kind of complaint might arise. There was a distributorship contract uh, between Quarella, which was the company that had been unsuccessful uh, in the arbitration, and their contracting counterparty from Australia, incidentally. Uh, and um, the, the contract was a distributorship contract and it had a choice of law clause where it said that the contract was governed by the CISG and where the CISG wasn't applicable, it was going to be governed by Italian law. Now, the, the problem here, which set up the whole dispute, was that the CISG governs sale of goods contracts and distributorship contracts aren't sale of goods contracts. So under the CISG's own terms, it didn't actually apply to the contract um, that the parties had whose choice of law clause included reference to the CISG. So the, the arbitrator had to work out what they actually meant. And what the arbitrator ended up deciding was that the CISG only applied to the extent that its own rules allowed. So for that reason, they just applied ordinary Italian law and didn't apply the CISG. But the losing party argued that the arbitrator should have applied the CISG because the, what the parties had meant to do in their choice of law clause was choose the CISG as a body of non-national rules, which you're often allowed to do in arbitration, so that it, um, it applied to their dispute, even if it wouldn't ordinarily have applied on its own terms. Uh, and, and they viewed that as the correct reading of the choice of law clause. And what the court ultimately held was just as we can't attack the merits of an arbitrator's decision, if an arbitrator is required to interpret a choice of law clause involving the CISG, that's also a merits issue. The choice of law clause is part of the contract uh, and interpreting that is an exercise in contractual interpretation. So those kind of errors, this case tells us also can't be corrected. But maybe if you had a different, more extreme kind of situation where the CISG might apply under a choice of law clause, but that clause is completely disregarded by a tribunal. That might be the, the kind of issue that leads to an award being able to be challenged and whether that's on public policy grounds or excessive jurisdiction grounds or procedural grounds. Different people have different views about that. And that's something I'm actually exploring in my research at the moment. Love that. Yeah. I think that at the end of the we're talking about contracts, right? And so it, mm -hmm. it depends on what you agree to, right? And I think that's really important. Wow. So Ben, thank you so much. This has been very informative. I know I took notes and I will definitely be learning from this. Thank you for taking all this time with us. It's my pleasure. And um, Amy, I should also mention, I really enjoy listening to the podcast myself. So looking forward to uh, hearing what further episodes you have from here. Thank you. And we will have you again, by the way. It would be a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Arbitrate.com. 
For more information about Arbitrate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.arbitrate.com.